Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Tony Rose Deannon, she, her pronouns, and I am a program manager at Modern Classroom. I am joined by one of our expert mentors and I've had the lovely, lovely pleasure of getting to know Allison Stone. So welcome, Allison. Hi, I'm really excited to be on the podcast. I am just as excited as you. So it's so exciting to be in this space with you. And thank you so much for saying yes to the podcast. Before we get started, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling pretty good. I am currently on a half year sabbatical um, from teaching and I've been doing an administrative leadership program. Um, And that's just given me the opportunity to do a lot of thinking, um, which I'm appreciative of. Uh, What a nice feeling to be on sabbatical, I feel like. I feel like I need to be on a forever sabbatical. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, okay, so tell us more about who you are and how you started your modern classroom journey. So I am a high school science educator in Central Bucks School District in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Um, I have been teaching at the high school level. I think this is year 17 for me. Um, I teach human anatomy and physiology, and I teach all levels of biology. Uh, We're a 10 through 12 building, um, so we are like truly a high school. Um, I started doing Modern Classrooms Project uh, in response to the pandemic, as I know a lot of your other guests have said. Um, It was the summer after the shutdown, so the summer of 2020. I knew that I was going to have to approach things differently just because of how uncertain the 2020-2021 school year was going to be. And I heard Kareem on um, Cold of Pedagogy. And then my um, our, our person in charge of star- staff development said something to me about the, the free course. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to look that up. I'm going to look that up. I'm going to give that a try. And I did. And, um, and that was it. And I was like, okay, I'm doing this all out. So I worked that whole summer uh, to get my anatomy and physiology course set up and implemented. And I haven't looked back since. And I'm glad that you had that support as well from like an instructional coach or, you know, just to kind of have a support system. Did you have any coworkers that you did this with or were you just kind of on your own? Yeah, so uh, my partner in crime, Kelly Peliquin, who's also in my building and also teaches biology, um, she's just an early adapter of many things, but she dove in with me. She did biology. I did anatomy and physiology. And now we're working together. Um, She's now teaching anatomy and physiology as well and sort of using um, like my format that we developed in Canvas. And then I actually started teaching a biology course that she had taught and, and converted to modern classrooms. So I sort of used her format going into this past school year. Oh, I love that. I bet it made it so much more uh, manageable when you have a teacher bestie right beside you doing this, right? Absolutely. Um, and it was, and it's, we're actually also now working on developing an asynchronous course that our uh, district is rolling out and we're working as a team to develop that. So we're similar, but we also do have different styles and different ideas. And so I just love that it 
you know, that diversity that it brings to planning together. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. It seems like you're doing some great, great things. So let's move on to the next question. I know that you had approached me to talk about cognitive science and it's wild because I know little about cognitive science. I like to think I know a lot. (laughs) So I'm really excited to learn from you uh, from this conversation. So tell us more about cognitive science and how that plays with modern classroom. So my, this, this happened before modern classroom. I started to dive into some cognitive science and like how that ties into good teaching and learning. I would say maybe in like 2016, I started all my research and modern classrooms, I feel like really pulls on a lot of these ideas that I, I had been learning about. Like when I, and that's why I adopted the, the model so quickly. But one of the things that we ask from our students is, is we want them to become independent learners. But if we want them to become independent learners, that means, means we need to teach them, like how do we actually learn? Um, and you would be surprised, again, I teach 10 through 12th graders, and a lot of them are using strategies, study strategies that are actually pretty ineffective um, because nobody's taught them otherwise. Um, so what is cognitive science? I think I could sort of start with that. Um, and it's just the scientific study of how humans learn. And it originated probably in the 19, early 1950s um, with this idea of information processing. And the, the information processing model um, tells us like there's kind of three pieces to learning. So it's sensory input and like what kinds of things are we paying attention to? So this is like that attention piece. What what are we attending to? Those things become encoded into the second part of the information processing cycle, which is your working memory. And we've all heard about that as teachers, like you can hold, you know, between five and nine items in that working memory. And then some of that stuff in the working memory can be then incorporated into long term memory, which is what we want. Like that's when they have ultimately learned. But in addition to that, like sometimes you can store things in long term memory, but they don't hang out there for very long. So you need to continue to rehearse and retrieve information from your long term memory. And the more you do that, the more you pull information out of your long-term memory, the more solidified it becomes and more embedded. And that's ultimately what we want for our our students is that long-term learning piece. Um, And so when I think about this in terms of modern classrooms, this is actually part of my unit zero. And I teach biology, I teach human anatomy and physiology. So there's some connection between, you know, how the brain works and obviously human anatomy and physiology, not so much with biology, but I don't think it matters. Like I want to teach my students to be better, better students. I want them to be better learners. I want them to be self-sufficient learners. So I explicitly teach about information processing during my unit zero. Um, And I think it's key to empowering students to learn independently. Um, There are all kinds of things we can do in our classroom to promote the idea, like what we know about information processing, we can promote good practices. And by explicitly teaching it, students understand why, as a teacher, I'm choosing certain activities. Um, But so that's sort of big picture of cognitive science. But one of the things that I found this year um, with the class I was working with was um, that it really tied into another piece of, of cognitive science, which is something called cognitive load theory. And I'm kind of an, I'm a novice when it comes to cognitive load theory. Like, I don't know that much about it, but I'm learning more about it. And there have been a lot of people um, I, I've noticed on the Facebook group, like asking, and, and I know too, um, 
Tony Rose, like some of the podcasts that you've recorded, people have asked about motivation and how to keep kids motivated. And I think a lot of it actually ties back to this idea of cognitive load theory. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that and then how that applies to the modern classroom like setup and self-pacing. And I'm so excited to learn about this as well, right? So cognitive load um, overload, that's something that I've been also trying to kind of decipher when I'm working with adult learners as well. It's like, I don't want to give too much information because then they're really not going to get all of the things. So I think this is where the lesson classification works really well, right? Like the must do super intentional with what we want our students to be looking at. And then like the should do and the aspire to do as well as like extra stuff that we would love for them to do, but not necessarily needed. And, and so I'm, I'm excited. Let's dive, let's dive into it. Okay. So again, this is a big idea and I'm a novice, but this is really, it's really about the working memory piece of uh, the information processing. So again, like we can hold like so many items in that working memory, you know, between five and, and nine items, depending on what's going on around us. Um, but we can actually think of the working memory as a glass. This has been the most helpful for me. So like filling a, a glass with, with water. Um, there's three parts of the working memory that fit in the glass. So the first part is intrinsic load, and that's determined by the number of things that we're trying to learn and how the, how, what are the connections between those things. Um, and so this is, this is like, what are, the, what are we asking students to remember? And if it's something really challenging, it's that intrinsic load is gonna fill more of the glass than something that's not as challenging. Additionally, intrinsic load is really influenced by your students' prior knowledge. So when we talk about scaffolding, like if they have some prior knowledge of the topic, that's going to help them decrease intrinsic load because they'll be able to pull some ideas from their long-term memory to incorporate the new ideas and like build into that scaffold. So students who don't have good prior knowledge, intrinsic load is going to be bigger and it's going to fill more of the glass. And students who do have good prior knowledge, intrinsic load is not going to fill as much of their, their glass of water. Then we have extraneous load. And as teachers, I think we probably have the most control over the extraneous load. And this is all the unnecessary details that can sometimes be included in your instructional material. So like if you throw up a cat meme that doesn't have anything to do with what you're trying to teach, now the attention is directed toward the cat meme and not the new information. And so we're taking up more of that glass with that extraneous node load. Um, or like you have some weird unrelated animation as part of your slide, or even if you have like a really monotonous voice, um, the text is tiny or too big or just like hard to read. Um, and, and then like, I almost feel like this is sort of, I don't know, like a non-adaption of this idea of cognitive load theory, but this is something people always think about is like your classroom, is it like totally busy? Are there like things hanging from the ceiling and all over your walls that could influence extraneous load? Although like, I don't know that that's as big a problem as sometimes people focus on, but it's still a piece of that extraneous load. So if we can minimize the amount of water that goes to the extraneous load, we're less likely to overflow. Finally, the third piece. So we've talked about intrinsic load, extraneous load. Germane load is what we want. So this is that integration of new knowledge into the old knowledge. And we want that to happen. So we want to have enough space in the glass 
for the germane load to be there. And we also need to be explicit about how the content connects to their prior students prior knowledge. And so it's important to kind of tease out where they are in terms of prior knowledge and be aware of gaps in student knowledge because the less, again, the less prior knowledge they have, um, the more the intrinsic load is going to fill and you won't have as much space for them to actually incorporate what they're trying to learn into their long-term memory. Allison, I think my mind is blown right now. Um, I'm, I'm processing all of this wonderful information. I think the biggest takeaway for me was the extraneous load that you were talking about, right? The unnecessary details that's included in the instructional material. And this is something that I tell my mentees all the time is like, be intentional with this model. You have to be super intentional. Like as much as we love GIFs, as much as we love these cool little images and memes and all of that, actually the simpler your instructional videos are, the better. Like you don't actually need to have all of these fireworks to make it look engaging or exciting or whatever. And so this, this makes me feel good that like there's research on it and you're telling us that like, we don't actually need any of those things. We need it to be as simple and concise for students to really get the information that they need. So again, like being super intentional with what we put in front of our students, right? So, okay, continue. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was one of the things I was going to say, like really easy way to incorporate, like what I'm telling you into your lessons is how can you get rid of those things that aren't really, don't really pertain to the learning, right? Um, and even I think sometimes with the practice activities we come up with, like we want to have something that's fun and engaging, but are we making it too much about being fun and engaging and maybe not enough about the actual learning that we want to happen? Um, you know, how are we asking students to practice, uh, you know, content? Are we asking them to play a game that they've never played before and they have to learn the rules of the game first, then they can practice with the content. And if you're doing that, you have to think, I mean, is there value in learning the game? Well, if you're going to use, use a game maybe throughout your course, well, yeah, like teach them the game because it's fun and then they can learn the rules and use it. But if you're going to change the game every time, now you're losing like valuable time and, and cognitive load capacity or cognitive capacity to just learning the rules of a game rather than the content that we want to practice. Yeah. And that makes so much sense. I know for me, when I was in the classroom, gamification was a big deal and it still is. And I just could not, I, I couldn't get on board because I just didn't, I, it wasn't going to work for me as a teacher and that was okay. Right. So some teachers are really good with gamification, but for me, it wasn't about uh, creating fun and engaging tasks. It was like getting my students to really master the content and the skills. And if we have time and capacity, then yes, we'll play those games. Um, another thing that I thought about too, this is making me think about all the tech tools and programs that are out there, right? And having to teach students the skill of accessing these different tech tools and programs. And so again, being super intentional with which tools and programs you want to use in your classroom. And just like what you said, right, if you're going to be using Flipgrid, then yes, it is really great for you to go over Flipgrid and talk about it. So students know how to access that and know how to use it. And but if you're just going to use one thing, like at that one point, um, are you going to have time to go over how to teach that skill to students? And another thing, too, to keep in mind is like our students are really great at figuring things out, right? Like I figured out TikTok because of them. Um, they taught me how to create TikTok videos because of them. And so 
And so it's really interesting. I know when I first started working as a teacher, I wanted to incorporate technology. So I just put in so many different tech tools and programs. And that was definitely a mistake because it took time for me to introduce this this uh, tech tool, the program, and then students to get used to it, to try and figure out how to use it effectively and efficiently. And so that took away time from them actually learning the skill. And so the students would be like, oh, I learned how to use storyboard, but not the skill <laughs> that we were focusing on. So thank you for that. This is, again, so great. Continue on. <laughs> uh, 100%. And that was a, that's another thing that I think of, like, and I've changed my practice to be like, why am I asking students to make these complicated videos about, you know, something they're learning about and they're spending so much time learning about that video, the video software. And like, they haven't actually come out on the other end learning about the content that I wanted them to learn about. And, and so, and I've done the same thing. So like, just again, thinking about like, what are the best tech tools and what are the ones that move my students closer to those learning objectives? I'm going to pick those. I'm going to teach them early and then I'm going to rotate them maybe, but I'm going to use them frequently over the whole course um, so that I don't have to reteach that. And again, we can focus on the content, which is what I want them to come out of my classroom knowing. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit more um, about how I really see cognitive load as being a factor in students who are maybe chronically behind or you know you do something in class and like no one's getting it done and it's taking forever and why is that happening um and so what, there's there's been a, an article that's kind of been floating around on twitter um uh and it's it's by a cognitive scientist named Stephen Chu and he actually has a great video to go along with it too but tony rose if we can include the diagram in the show notes that'd be awesome Yes, I'm planning on putting all of these diagrams in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, and so he wrote an article about choke points and pitfalls in learning. And so it comes back to this information processing model and all of the places where students can get frozen or like they might fall into a trap where they think they're doing something that's helpful for their learning and it's actually not helpful for their learning. Um, and so I think this is like a really good, I, I wouldn't necessarily share this with students, but I think as a teacher, it's a good di um, image to look at and just like think to yourself, like what's going on in my classroom? Is it because of one of these choke points of pitfalls? Um, so for example, um, as far as cognitive load, there could be a choke point in the mental effort or concentration. It, it's like limited. And so we want to make sure that students really have that prior knowledge and we might want to pre-assess. And then if they don't have that prior knowledge in the pre-assessment, well, we need to teach it first before we move on to the more complicated material, which is nice because modern classrooms allows for that. I feel like, like you could pre-assess and those kids who don't have that prior knowledge, you spend the time with them to give them the prior knowledge because why would you push them on to the harder stuff if they don't have that prior knowledge versus the students who have the prior knowledge, you can move them on and then hopefully they can get on to one of those, you know, aspire to do assignments um, to stretch their thinking. So you, you, you have the space to do that in a, in a traditional classroom. You, you just really don't have that. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not going to read through that whole diagram, but it's like super helpful. And, and again, it's a good thing to, to think about, like when you're having problems in your classroom. Um, I'm also reading a book right now um, called uh, Secondary, Teaching Secondary Science by Adam Boxer. And it's just like totally blowing my mind. Like he is a teacher over in Great Britain and he uses a lot of cognitive science 
strategies to inform his teaching like in a, in a way deeper way than I do. Um, but one of the things that he talked about in the book was this idea of mirrors or windows. So when you look out at your classroom and everything is going amazing, your focus should be like, look at all these amazing things that my students are doing. And, you know, like pointing out, you know, Sally, you're just doing such an awesome job, like staying on task. Johnny, you like know the content so well. But then as a teacher, the other, the converse of that is when I look out in my classroom and things aren't going well, um, there are many students off pace. I need to look in the mirror. What am I doing and what can I change as an educator to make things happen in a good way so that I'm looking through the window again, you know? Um, and I just like really like that, that viewpoint. And, and it comes back to, again, to this like choke points and pitfalls. Like what, what are my students experiencing and what can I do as a teacher to help them get through that? Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about an experience because I'm on sabbatical. I've had the opportunity to visit some classrooms and one of them um, is a classroom of, of my teacher bestie, Kelly. Um, and I was observing her um, implementing Modern Classroom Project, and she was struggling with students falling off pace. So when I came to see her, we had decided that she was going to stop MCP, like the self-pacing, and do a teacher pace lesson, but but go through, you know, a Modern Classroom lesson. So they the first thing they did was they watched her video as a class, and the video was about six minutes long. And I timed the whole thing and it took about 20 minutes to watch that video as a class. And when she and I debriefed, we took a hard look at the video. She had seven or maybe more, more questions embedded in that six minute video. And the questions I felt were like, it was good. They were good questions, but a lot of them were asking students to access prior knowledge. And so, but she was also introducing new knowledge and many of the students sitting in front of her didn't actually have the prior knowledge. So we talked about how can we approach this in a way where we're making sure we are accessing that prior knowledge, but not trying to do it at the same time that you're teaching new knowledge. By the time we were done the video, I felt as confused as the students, even though I'm really comfortable with biology content because I was, my attention was so distracted by those questions, even though, again, they were good questions. It was just like in the wrong format. Um, so we took a look at it and, and we decided she was gonna pull almost all of the questions and keep the questions in the video really, really explicit to the content that the students were learning. So like basically right from the video, just to make sure they were still paying attention. The other thing we saw was students weren't taking guided guided notes while we were watching the video they forgot because they were paying attention to the video and there were like too many things going on in the video they couldn't remember to take those guided notes so if you can imagine a student who has you know um, they need extra support in the classroom and and they may have some disabilities that make it difficult to um, you know hold information in working memory or they don't have the prior knowledge this is going to be really frustrating for them. And it might be a choke point. Like they might say, I don't care if this video is six minutes long. It's going to take me 20 minutes to do, and I'm not going to know anything at the end of it. Um, and so that it, I think it was just really valuable for us to take a really hard look at, at that video. And she has seen that like now that she's looking at her videos and the questions she has embedded. So not just the videos, it's just the questions embedded. Um, she's gotten a little bit better buy-in from her students moving through.
And that and that all makes sense, right? Um, and that was something too that I would tell my mentees is that if you have a six minute video, just be super intentional. Again, that word, right? Of the questions that you're asking, and it has to be something that you just said in the video, as opposed to a brand new thing that they should have known. Um, and we're assuming that students should know. And so that really took away from um, the from learning the content. And that was my experience as well when I first started with Modern Classroom and the videos was that students were taking 20, 30 minutes watching a six minute video because I had them doing so many things. They were asked, you know, they were answering questions. They were taking guided notes. And it was just a lot, especially like for um, my students who were also just learning English and my students who had 504 and IEPs, like it was a challenge because it was so many things that I was, I was getting them to do. And so I had to take away all of those barriers. Like that one was on me. Um, and so, I, I mean, what you said earlier too, it resonated with me um, about the mirrors or windows, right? I think as teachers, sometimes it's easier for us to just kind of say, oh, well, you know, the students can't do this or the students can't do that. Or like, oh, because, you know, so-and-so they're not able to do this when actually like our students are able to do everything and anything we throw at them with the correct scaffolds and the support and really just keeping in mind this cognitive overload as well too, right? And so this is all great things to keep in mind. Um, and it's it's hard sometimes to look at the mirror and 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 just kind of reflect on like, okay, what am I doing as a teacher that's not working? What barriers am I creating that students are not being successful with these things that we're doing in class? And so I think that's a really great practice, right? Like the mirrors or windows. And so um, this is great that you're able to go in and observe your teacher bestie and just kind of reflect on the practice, right? And it's it seems like your teacher Bessie was very receptive to being like, oh, okay, like, yeah, I meant well, my intention was this, but it did not, the impact was not that. <laughs> and, and just kind of like pivoting, right? And just making sure, okay, what are, what can I do now to disrupt or like take away all these barriers that I've created without even meaning to create, you know? And so, uh, yeah, these are, these are great. Uh, Allison, you're blowing my mind. Like, this is amazing. I I feel good because as a teacher, I'm like, okay, I was doing some of these things. I was getting to it. Uh, and I feel like I should have known this from the get-go. But it's really it's really nice to see that there's, like, studies and that, you know, there's there's better ways to get our students to where we need them to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, I just – I don't think enough teacher preparation programs include this information. And I think it's really valuable to have it and be like, oh – that's why it doesn't work versus again, you know, saying, well, the students just can't handle it. I, I had my own experience in the fall where I had one particular student um, who was an English language learner getting stuck on Quizlet practice. So I really like Quizlet. I think it's really valuable. Um, I like the learn function. I don't know if everybody knows about the learn function in Quizlet, but um, oh, great. <laughs> it, it's really good. Um, and it, at one point, it, it like differentiates. So like one, if students having trouble with a particular term, it like just keeps bringing that back until they get it. But um, the first part of it is is multiple choice. But then the second part of it, they have to type in the word. And so some of my students, particularly my English language learners, were um, getting stuck because 
it was hard to spell the words or they'd spell them wrong. And then it would like flip that back. So we started using a word bank, um, which I, they have provided in their guided notes, but I would just direct them to that. Use this word bank while you're doing the Quizlet. And for some students that worked, but I still had some students who just like, just kept getting stuck on that Quizlet assignment, which I had in pretty much every lesson that I was doing. So um, I ended up printing out flashcards with the terms and then they just played a matching game and then I would when they were ready I would come over and just check and make sure that they matched the word to the definition correctly and just got them off the computer completely because it just it wasn't working for them and it was it was too much work for them to it was getting they were getting again they were they were experiencing one of those choke points that they couldn't move beyond and then they were getting behind the rest of the students so I had to look at my practice and say well you know, what barriers are they experiencing? Why are they feeling that frustration that they can't move forward? Um, and so, and, and, you know, once you have it, then you have it. Like, so now I have it. And in the future, when I see that happening, that can be my response. Um, also with reading, uh, a lot of students, you know, struggle with reading, but I'm not teaching reading. I'm teaching biology and I don't want the reading to be a barrier for my students. So anytime I have something that has a long passage or longer directions, I like to re I like record my voice and just embed that into my canvas and say, you know, you can read these directions or you can listen to Mrs. Stone read the directions. Um, and the number of students who just pop in their headphones quietly, nobody else needs to know that they're actually listening to me read. Um, it's just awesome. And it's just like, again, reducing one of those barriers that in the past, you know, students would act out or whatever when I asked them to read something because it was a difficult task for them and they were trying to balance too many things when they were reading, sounding words out, whatever. So they couldn't focus on the actual content that, that I wanted them to learn. Um, and this is like a way to do that, to, to differentiate for them. That's not going to embarrass them and it's going to give them the tools they need to move forward and get unstuck. I mean, Allison, I teach reading and I do the same thing. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just, again, making the learning accessible, right? And so, yeah. of course, we're going to have students who struggle with specific skills. And it's not for us to reprimand them or make them feel bad about it. But it's us for, you know, to lift them up and to provide those supports and scaffolds so that they do feel confident to make those mistakes, to try out those skills that they've been struggling with for a long time. And and I think the beauty of teaching is that we get to change our strategies, our practices as often as we want to, as often as we need to, because our students are so different every single year. And, and I think with Modern Classroom, too, is that it provides time for teachers to be able to do that. And I mean, I know there's a lot of front loading as far as planning is concerned with Modern Classroom. But then like when you're in the classroom, you have all of the time to be able to see and notice, oh, my students are not they're stuck here. So let me create a different option for them so that they can be successful and they're not stuck. So getting them to be unstuck, we have more energy and time for that in a modern classroom, I believe, because I think when I was teaching traditionally, right, my class time was all about lecturing and making sure everyone was doing the same thing all the time. And that was such a struggle. And so, of course, for me to be like, oh, I'm going to stop and pause and create a different venue, a different option, a different entrance point for this student. That was really overwhelming for me when I was teaching traditionally. And so with Modern Classroom, it really opens up that time and space and that energy as a teacher 
to kind of sit back, reflect and think, okay, here's another option or here's another like entrance point that my students can do to show me that they've mastered the skill. And then also like, what are the barriers, you know? So if it's easier for me to record something, I'll go ahead and record that because again, that's not the struggle that I want my students to have. Yeah. And that's what gets me just so excited about Modern Classroom and and certainly my experience in the fall. Um, I, it, it is so beautiful to be able to sit back and watch and notice and then respond instead of, you know, just trying to control the situation in the classroom. And it makes the learning visible. Like I think Modern Classroom more than anything, like now things are visible that weren't visible to me before. I wouldn't necessarily have noticed that the Quizlet wasn't working for certain students because I just, okay, we're done. We're moving on because that's where everybody is, but that's not where everybody is. Right. So, so modern classroom really gives you that flexibility to, to see it in real time, which is so exciting. And, and this is where like, you know, I wasn't paying as much attention to this cognitive load theory idea uh, before I was teaching modern classroom, but now that I'm doing modern classroom, now that, little piece of, of cognitive science that, that I know researchers see in the lab, like I'm actually seeing it right in front of me in the classroom, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I know I was really bummed because it was my 10th year of teaching when I found out about Modern Classroom. And all I could say was, oh my gosh, I wish I had this ever mm-hmm. since day one. I wish I had this because I feel like I would have done some cool things, you know? I mean, I still did cool things, but it wasn't as cool as Modern Classroom. So can you, okay, so Allison, can we talk about the reflection and the metacognition of all of this as well? Because I know reflection is a huge part of Modern Classroom. Yeah. And, and again, like this is definitely a strategy that I was looking at even before Modern Classroom, but um if we're talking about getting our students to understand how to learn and then the idea of mastery shifting, you know, their attention from, but what grade did I get to, but what do I know um, is so important. And I think building in space for reflection for students. And I know this is part of the, um, of the core of, you know, the free course or, you know, the mentoring course, but um getting students to reflect frequently on what do they know and what don't they know. Um, it's just like essential like that. How do they move forward if, if they don't have a way of evaluating their own learning? Um, and so I actually do a weekly um, every Friday. We do like a Friday survey where I might say to them, tell me three things you learned this week. Tell me something that you struggled with this, this week. Um, what, what's something that you want to make sure you do for next week, just getting them to reflect. And and I know that you've had that, um, in the past, uh, on, on other podcasts, like talking about like a weekly email or whatever that they send out where they are, but not just that, but also like, what do I now know? And what do I still need to work on? What don't I know yet? Um, and, and getting them to really think about it. Uh, one of the things, um, I like to do sometimes is, uh, at the beginning of class, sometimes we do retrieval activities. So, so just practice what they, they knew um, they learned a lesson before or a week before or a month before. So we do a little practice with that, but I might throw up like a matching uh, vocabulary uh, question on the board and I'll say, you know, go ahead and, and do this. And then I'll say to the whole class, okay, I want you to raise your hand if you use a test taking strategy like elimination uh, for this question. And, you know, you'll have a, a bunch of students raise your hand and then I'll say, okay, I want you to tell me um, how many of you looked at the word and you automatically knew the definition like 
and you just kind of looked for it and you knew right away. And those kids raise their hand and I say, well, those of you that use test taking strategies, I just want you to internalize for a second that you're still a novice because you had to eliminate, you didn't know that word like right off the bat. Um, and those of you who knew the definition right away and didn't, you just like needed to find the definition in the list, you guys are experts. So where are you on the schedule or, on, on there? Are you, are you a novice? Are you an expert? And just giving them the chance to reflect on that, not calling anybody out for it, but we do need to show students like there's a difference between recognizing something and knowing something. Um, and so I try to build in those kinds of deeper metacognitive activities as often as I can, you know, how do you know what you learned? Those kinds of questions I think are really helpful for students and getting them to move forward to the next piece of their education, which is really learning, um, owning their learning. That's what I wanted to say, owning their learning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of retrieval, retrieval practice only because I know that that works. Right. And so with the guided notes, I go back and forth with a couple of like implementers and also just like my colleagues about about guided notes. Um, I really want my students to do retrieval notes. So after watching the video, then they can write down everything that they learned so I can see what those misconceptions are and what they actually got out of the video. Another thing that I was thinking too, Allison, when it comes to reflection, right, in the metacognition practice, it's it's really interesting because I teach middle school. And so I had to teach my students how to reflect. It wasn't just a skill that they had because working with sixth graders, you tell them, what did you learn? They'll be like, I don't know, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> and it's like, no, like, let's really think about it. So I had to model how that looks. I had to show an example. I had to get them to practice over and over so that they can uh, get that uh, reflection uh, piece down, right? So it's not just a hurried, like, okay, I'll just do this and I'll get it done in two minutes, but really taking the time to reflect on what they learned and how they learned it and what are some things that worked for them and what didn't work for them. Teachers, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, this is a skill that's been taught already. It's not like, take a moment to just make sure that students know exactly what you mean by reflecting. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, I, I made me think of something that um, I'm working on creating more of these, but um, there's a uh, AP psychology teacher, his name is Blake Harvard, um, and he's involved with actually with COGX. And I think there's going to be a webinar with COGX and um, Modern Classrooms soon. Um, but he has this activity that he calls Brain Book Buddy. And he has, you know, it could, you could have a worksheet and at the top of the worksheet, you would put a box, like a box for students to color and then right next to it brain and then a box for students to color and next to that write book and then a box for students to color and next to that uh, write buddy. And what his students do is they retrieve first. So they get the worksheet. It's got information maybe from a prior lesson. They answer as much as they can on the worksheet without using any notes, just using their brain. So purely retrieval. The next thing they do is they look at um, what they've, they, they highlight all, the next thing they do is they highlight all of the things that they could remember, like let's say blue, and then they color that little box, brain box blue. And then the next thing they do is they go to their notes and try to fill in any gaps, anything they missed. Any of those words that they fill in, maybe they highlight those yellow and they color their, their book box yellow. 
And then if there's anything they're still missing, so maybe something that they didn't fill in in their guided notes or something that they missed, they're going to maybe turn to a partner or somebody else in the classroom and see if they can fill in any of the other things that they're missing. And then that last thing they're going to do is, is highlight that maybe in pink. And those are the things I had to talk to a buddy about. Then you ask them to reflect. Okay, so the things that you highlighted, you know, in blue, which I think is what I said their brain was, you're good. You know those so that you can feel confident. You know that information. If you had to go to your notebook, those are some things that you still need to study. So you might even in your notebook highlight those places in your notebook just to make sure you take a look at that um, and think about it in the future. And then the the buddy one, that me me as a teacher, I may want to look at that and say, oh, why didn't you have that done? Was I not clear of that on the video? Or the student could say, maybe I'm not filling my guided notes out correctly, and I need to make sure I'm paying more attention when I do my guided notes. So it, it's sort of, you know, you're doing your content, but you're also building in that metacognition when you're doing that little activity, really simple, really quick activity. You can do it with anything that you've, you already have. You don't even need to put the boxes at the top. You can kind of just walk your students through it. I think it's a great way to work in metacognition but still in a way where you're focused on, on your class content. I love that because then they get to practice with the content multiple times, right? So the brain, the book, and then the buddy. And something too that I tell my students all the time is that maybe sometimes what I'm saying doesn't resonate with the student, so they're not understanding. So then that's why I have uh, student leaders or student teachers in the class because then maybe their buddy can say it one way and then it clicks, right? The light bulb is on and they get it. And and so I'm, I'm okay with that as a teacher too of being like, you know what, the way that I um, delivered this didn't make any sense to you, but then another student was able to to provide that information for you. That is amazing. So yes, please use your buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yeah, I, I really, really love that. I mean, all of this is just such great, great, information to know as a teacher. And it kind of makes me want to go back in the classroom to just kind of toy around with it. Uh, So, but let's move forward. I feel like Allison, you and I can talk about this for hours. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So what do you hope for our listeners to take away from you? Um, So the one thing is I didn't really know about learning science. I don't like, again, I've been teaching for 17 years probably like 10 years in, I really didn't know anything about it. And that's when I started to do my research. Um, So there is a whole world of learning science out there that many teachers in the United States are unaware of. And I would encourage you to just look at even one of the resources that um, we're going to include in the show notes. Uh, Cognitive scientists are doing really interesting research. And there are a number of really smart educators out there, too, that are incorporating these discoveries into their teaching. Um, And I think they're seeing like huge dividends by inserting cognitive science ideas into their classroom, teaching students how to learn and giving them the tools to be successful in the, in the future. Yeah. And even if, you know, you don't know a lot of the research about, um, behind it, I know for me, I didn't know the research behind it, but it's kind of, it's kind of nice to hear that some of my practices I've been doing it just right (laughs) and appropriately (laughs) for my students. And so, uh, this is, yeah, this is really great. Thank you. So what are your goals as we move forward, wrapping up this school year? Um, so as I mentioned before, I'm working on a completely asynchronous online course for my district. So I'll be, um, incorporating the modern classroom model, um, and also making sure that my knowledge of cognitive science is, is going to be used to sort of inform the layout of the course. I'm excited to start using those weekly emails since this is going to be an asynchronous course. Uh, I think they're going to be really valuable for, uh, the students that are participating in it. Yeah. And that's great. So how can our listeners connect with you? 
Um, so you can email me. I'm Allison Stone. It's Allison with one L, um, stone as in a rock. So allison.stone at modernclassrooms.org. Um, I'm also pretty active on Twitter, um, and my uh, Twitter handle is at Allison Stone CBSD. Awesome. And I know you have a webinar coming up, Allison. So you want to tell us more about that so we can hear more from you? Um, so the webinar is more about like institutional change and um, how to get teachers to buy into big educational shifts that make sense for education uh, in a positive way, like sort of shifting school culture. Gosh, you're so cool. You're just so cool, Allison. <laughs> I don't have anything else except that you're so cool and I want to like continue talking to you. This is amazing. Thanks, so Karen. yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Listeners, remember you can always email us at podcast at modernclassrooms.org and you can find the show notes for this episode at podcast.modernclassrooms.org slash 88. You can also read a recap of this episode on the Modern Classrooms blog. And in a few days, we'll have this episode's transcript uploaded for you as well. Thank you all for listening. Have a great week and we'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students and schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Modern Classrooms.